Well, praise God. We are blessed this morning to be able to look at Psalm 37, a Psalm of David, the great king of Israel who reigned for 40 years, roughly about the time of 110 B.C. to 970 B.C., a thousand years before Christ and about 500 years before uh, the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're still in the middle of our series of Ezra and Nehemiah, but taking a break again today. Uh, Jeff Brown will be back next week to continue our series uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, actually beginning Nehemiah chapter 1 next week. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Adam preached uh, from Psalm 34, and so this week we'll be looking at Psalm 37. It's in the, in the same neighborhood there. Also, uh, I know that our women's Bible study on Wednesday mornings is going through the Psalms as well. And many of you here, women that, uh, are, that participate in that Bible study, you know what an excellent study that is. I encourage you, ladies, if you have an opportunity to join in that study, it's a wonderful time. I encourage you to do that. So let's take a look. Uh, if you have your Bibles open now to uh, Psalm 37, it's 40 verses that are separated into 22 stanzas. And so we're going to spend about 10 minutes on each one here. I'm kidding. No, not quite that long. But uh, you might notice if you look at, uh, there's a footnote at the bottom of your uh, Bible that has a, a footnote here for this psalm. It says that it, uh, uh, my ESV footnote says, this psalm is an acrostic poem, each stanza beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And there are two or three other psalms that do this. It's a pretty interesting uh, technique. Anyone who reads Hebrew or in original, Anyone who reads and understands Hebrew in the original text uh, would notice that this alphabetic uh, acrostic pattern and would use it in, to aid in teaching or training or memorization, kind of like we do uh, now with our children and, you know, with an, an English alphabet. Uh, and some English translations have attempted to try to maintain that as they translate uh, God's Word into English, but it's very difficult uh, to, to keep maintain, to retain the meaning and also fit in uh, those letters. So you might have a King James version in your lap or even on your phone, you might notice if you look at the King James version, you'll see that uh, if I, if I, some of the translations do this, they'll actually add like a, like a, uh, they'll number, if you will, with letters, uh, the Hebrew letters, uh, this Psalm in stanzas. It's pretty interesting if you want to take a look at that. Uh, also, some notice a chiastic structure to this Psalm. You know, uh, A, B, uh, B, A, and it has a C in the middle, like there's a theme and another theme and then a center point, and then the themes are repeated in reverse as you go out. Um, uh, in this case, the center of the psalm would probably be uh, verse 23 through 26. But I also noticed that there's an obvious similarity as you read this psalm uh, to the format of the Proverbs. We just read verse 1 through 4. Doesn't it read a lot like the book of Proverbs? Uh, it does. And, uh, you know, the Proverbs, uh, they're usually in a form of couplet verses, you know. There's a, a one, two sides of one coin or maybe two, two themes together. Uh, but usually the couplet of verses, couple of verses together will stand alone. And you'll find that in this psalm as well. So it really would fit good into your, maybe a home Bible study if you wanted to 
read just uh, two or th- one, two or three of these verses together uh, every morning and meditate on them. Psalm 37 is, is, uh, is, is ready for that, for that kind of study. You'll notice too that it uses the second person voice, uh, the second person voice. So uh, an example, verse three, let's look at that. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. I'm sorry, yeah, verse, verse five. Commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Notice how the author is speaking directly to us. The author is speaking directly to you, to us. That's David speaking to his audience. That's David speaking to me and you and to us, even today. And that's the second person voice that we find there. Uh, I like to think as I read through this, it's not hard to picture David using this very psalm talking and teaching his own children, his own family, his own uh, people in his, in his uh, kingdom. It's not hard to imagine hearing him teach straight from this psalm, speaking directly to us. Well, the overall theme, if we look at these verses really can be narrowed down to three, uh, three points. And it really, each verse, in, each stanza in this psalm can be narrowed into three points. And the way I see it, here, here they are. One is trust in the Lord. And two is the righteous will flourish. And three, the wicked will perish. Trust in the Lord. The righteous will flourish. The wicked will perish. And that really sums up every verse in this, in this uh, psalm. So there's not much else to do, so I guess we can go home, right? <laughs> not so fast. There's quite a bit more. There's a lot more. Uh, as we go through, let's just take a, take a look at uh, separate uh, groups of verses here. And as we go through, I want you to maintain or recall and remember those three themes. Trust in the Lord, the righteous will flourish, the wicked will perish. Verse one, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Fret not. It's an interesting term, maybe a little bit aged. Uh, it's a, the, the, the word is it's used in the King James translation and so many years later ESV uses it maintains it because it's still pretty much the best uh, translation of the Hebrew there. Uh, don't, it, it's saying that we're not to be frustrated or stopped. Uh, to, to fret means to be consumed or uh, uh, to be uh, eaten, eaten up or, or uh, uh, ended or bound up. And so don't be frustrated by evildoers. Don't let evildoers control don't give evildoers control. Don't give them control. Also, uh, at the, the next phrase of that verse, be not envious of wrongdoers, that means don't envy them. Don't long to be like them and do not ignore or minimize or excuse their sin. Their sin. In one verse, we have two thoughts that are, seem to be opposites, but they really go together. We have... And, it's spoken to us as a command of a, what we are not to do. 
And I believe the reason is, is because we tend to do these things. We tend to let evildoers frustrate us, to stop us, to make us cease, make us tire of being obedient to the Lord. We tend to do that. We also tend to envy uh, what we see sometimes uh, in, in evildoers. They seem to get away with what they're doing. We try to give excuses for what they're doing. We try to minimize the evil of sin in, in our own lives, certainly, sometimes in the, in the lives of others, more so in our own lives. Uh, here's an interesting note about that first uh, verse. It's almost identical to Proverbs 24, 19. Proverbs 24, 19. Just, I have it here. Fret not yourself because of evildoers and do not be envious of the wicked. That's a, an interesting correlation. Uh, let's look here at verse 2. For they will soon fade like grass. So, so why are we, do we not, why, why do we have these commands? There's a, there's a, there's a reason. Uh, we see in verse 2, for they will soon fade like the grass. The, the wicked, the evildoers will fade like grass, and they will wither like the green herb. This is a common, easy-to-understand illustration, one David we would be quite familiar with. As a shepherd, he would look for green pastures for his flock, knowing well how quickly fields of grass can wither in the daytime sun. Knowing well how quickly the grass can wither in the light and the heat of the sun. That's the way the wicked will wither. We can understand that even today. Let's look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Uh, here, are, here we see uh, an addition of a... a a style in this verse where we have imperative commands, very clear, simple, monosyllabic <laughs> commands. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Now, ESV says befriend faithfulness. It might be better translated be fed. Be fed. Be fed. Do you hear this? These commands are for us to follow, and it's in a sense of that it must be so. I can remember that in, the, in Jesus' teachings, when he was teaching his disciples, he used this method many times. He, when he called his disciples, uh, we have an example that in some, in some cases, in many cases, two uh, uh, Two words, follow me. Follow me. What a great command for all of us to follow. Uh, that's a, a, a theme that we can pull from verse 3 here. Look at verse 4, another, uh, continuing on these imperative commands. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight. <laughs> Uh, one way you could say delight is it's to be happy about the Lord or to be happy in the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. The Hebrew word uh, can also be translated to be delicate or to be pliable. 
And I thought that was interesting if you put those words in here. Be pliable in the Lord. That isn't, uh, isn't it like clay in the hands of a potter to be pliable in the hands of, that, of the creator? My prayer is that I can be pliable in the hands of God, that God can form in me what God sees and God wants to form in me and God uh, has for me. Verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. All right, if we go uh, from here through verse six, these are some wonderful, fantastic, encouraging psalms. And I want you to remember where this is. Put a note beside it. There are times, it might not be today or next week or next month or even next year, but you may be in dire need of some encouragement. You may have a friend who's in dire need of some encouragement. And sometimes we may not know exactly where to turn first. Always a good place to turn is to God's Word. But you can open to this page and read these first six verses, and it'll fill your soul. It'll lift your spirits, right? We also know that sometimes if we look at Scripture this way and we think, you know, if you've lived through life and you've lived some, through some very difficult hardships, you lived through some struggles, you might be able to have, put your hand up or your, raise your hand and say, this sounds great and I trust God's Word, but it's not always like this. It doesn't always feel this way. Standing here, I'm looking even through here, my, my church family, and I see each of, each of you, and I know the pain and struggles that right now you're going through. The difficult times that you're praying earnestly for, asking for God to intervene, asking for God to heal, asking for God to provide. And you're waiting patiently. And some of you, some of us have experienced where even in the end, the, the answer we were asking for, the answer we were hoping for, didn't come. God had a, a different plan. And it does hurt. How does this square with these verses that seem to be rosy? <laughs> well, I want you to not forget what life that David went through. David knew all too well about these things. If you just look one chapter ahead, verse, uh, chap, uh, Psalm 38, <laughs> David has a very different tone. Psalm 38, verse, two, verse 1 and 2. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. God's word touches on all of our feelings, all of these experiences that we have in life. David, as a young man, and I believe that David... Was, he probably wrote this later in life, and we'll get to that in a minute why I think that. Even though it does tend to sound like, you know, a, even a, a Sunday school material, a childlike faith. David was anointed as king when he was still a child. He fought animals in the field with, killed, and killed animals with his bare hands. He killed Goliath with a sling, trusting in the Lord. He was chased by the king of Israel, the wicked, uh, the inadequately uh, prepared, or the the wicked king Saul, who chased him, who sought his life, 
and he, uh, he fled trusting in God. If you read, as uh, Adam, who just a couple of weeks ago preached uh, on uh, Psalm and spent a good deal of time describing some of the experiences that David had gone through, and that's really meaningful now as we look through this. And in spite of all those difficult times, in spite of being chased, and in spite of coming to near death many times, and even later in life when he came, uh, when he was uh, uh, secure in his throne, he uh, failed miserably in sin, committing adultery, committing likely, as it's described, rape and murder to cover it up and was called out by, uh, by Nathan, the prophet. And in, humble, in humility, his heart was broken and he repented. And God did not spare him the consequences of his sin. He suffered those consequences. And yet still, David can say in verse 7, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way or over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Let's uh, move down the page a little bit, and let's look at verse 9. Remember, there's three themes. Trust in the Lord. The righteous will flourish. The wicked will perish. Let's look at verse 9. I think the verse 9 has all three of those in one verse. They're a little bit out of order, but here we go. For the evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait for the Lord shall those who wait for the Lord, that's trust in the Lord, and shall inherit the land. That's the the righteous will flourish. All right. So uh, the first phrase there that uh, evildoers shall be cut off is uh, a, a very common recurring theme and recurring description of those who walk in sin. Those who uh, trust in their own way and don't trust in the Lord. We'll go, but we're going to get back to that in a minute. I want to skip to the, to the, the end of uh, this verse, and we'll uh, spend some time now on this phrase. Uh, Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Shall inherit the land. And you might want to underline that. I had to. I read this psalm over and over and over again several times and skipped over that phrase. And I didn't really notice until I'd spent more time in it uh, that, um, well, actually, I had a conversation uh, just a couple, a few days ago with Jeff when I was talking about my uh, topic, and uh, he actually asked me about that. What do you think about that, inherit the land? And I had uh, a little bit of understanding, but when, since he brought it up, I thought, well, I better really look into this because I don't want to get in trouble when Jeff gets back. I didn't cover it very thoroughly. Um, but uh, after I looked d- deeper into it, this, uh, this phrase, inherit the land, is repeated in this psalm four, t- four times. Verse 9, verse 10, verse 22, and verse 29. And if you look back to 
earlier in verse 3 that we're commanded to dwell in the land, you might add a fifth time. And in Scripture, even though the promise of inherit the land is repeated frequently in Scripture, I don't think there's a chapter in the Bible that repeats it this often. Psalm 37 repeats it more often than any other chapter. So I think there's something very significant about it being, pl- being placed here. So it mentioned in this context uh, that it reminds me of something that Jeff touched on last week. Remember last week was Ezra 10, and in his sermon topic, he mentioned the covenant that was cut. They were, uh, re- they were referring to the covenant cut where God promised the land to Abraham. If uh, I have it here uh, uh, reprinted, in Genesis chapter seven, uh, 15 and verse 7, we have when God made that promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. And he said to him, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And the, uh, the word possess there is the same exact word as to inherit that's used here in Psalm 37. But he said, this is Abraham talking back to the Lord. Imagine that. (laughs) He said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it, that I shall inherit it? How am I going to know that this will come to pass? And that's when God uh, instructed him to perform that ritual of cutting those animals in, in two, where normally the two, and Jeff touched on this last week, where the two who were making a covenant would walk between the cut animals and say, I promise to, to uh, we promise that we will abide by this covenant. But and yet in this situation, God's presence walked through or went through the, uh, the, the, the animals. This was a promise given by God. A promise guaranteed by God that they that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the land. All right. So uh, another instance of this phrase "inherit the land" is found in the Book of Psalms in Psalm twenty-five, uh, verse thirteen. Uh, we don't have time to. I, I won't take time to read that, but uh, you can look back at that again. It's just re- uh, another reference to it. So listen. When we read this psalm, and you know how sometimes when you read scripture you see layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of, of depth of meaning. Isn't that something that this scripture meant? It was true. It, it, was, it was true, understood to be true by David in the day he wrote it. It was understood to be true by everyone who listened to David or who read it since that 3,000 years of believers reading this psalm, continual truth every day for 3,000 years since it was written. Uh, What we have here, at least in one case, is a reference to the land at hand that David fought to conquer and possess for the kingdom of Israel. Remember what David's life consisted of? He was a warrior that spent a lot of time conquering land that should have already been conquered during the time of Joshua and Judges and hadn't been, had failed to be conquered, and David was continuing on God's command there to conquer the land and possess the land for the kingdom of Israel. Also, as mentioned, as I mentioned just before, uh, it's a reference to the land that God promised to Abraham. Also, now r- remember, as we're studying Ezra and Nehemiah, these were events for an exiled people 
about 500 years, but uh, right in the center of David's life and the life of Christ on earth was the exile in Babylon. Imagine being exiled and reading Psalm 37 to your children to remind them of the promise that that land is ours. We'll be able to go back one day. God has promised it to us. We hope in God's promise. We know eventually they began to return as we're studying even now. And I encourage you to come next week as we begin Nehemiah. You'll get to see more and more about how this plays out. But remember, as we've studied this Ezra over the last few weeks, they didn't all, after so many years, they didn't all long to return. They didn't all cling to God's promises. They'd made a pretty good home for themselves in Babylon, and some would rather have just stayed there. Uh, Now, Here's one more link, and you're probably ahead of me on this one. You probably thought, this sounds, Rodney, you're forgetting one that's really glaring. This sounds exactly like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. And it does sound like it, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. (laughs) They shall inherit the earth. I don't think there's any coincidence here. I think it's, uh, I know it's inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this links clearly to what's emphasized here in Psalm 37, that this is the message and the true message of the Lord. There's truth in that the meek will inherit the earth. Maybe you've heard before that meekness doesn't mean weakness, even though the words sound alike. It's really not any it anything like that. It's really self-control. It's really even great strength under control. That's really what meek, what the meek are. It's great strength under control. And Jesus refers to this as a blessing. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit, what? The earth, the earth. And didn't God create this world? Didn't God give commission to the first man, Adam, to steward the land, didn't he? What Jesus promises here, what David mentions in Psalm 37, is a reconciliation, a promise of reconciliation that we can look forward to one day when God's kingdom returns. We will inherit the land. So it's probably a little bit of all, all of those and maybe some others. As you study deep, deeper and deeper, you may see even more out of that. <clears throat> all right. Well, let's move on. Uh, uh, we have uh, just a couple, that, a couple of things. There's no way to uh, highlight every important item in th- these uh, in this psalm. So you've got your homework for this week is to go home and uh, underline and, and uh, research each verse and then come back and we'll talk about it. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But ladies, you might be doing that in a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks, you'll be looking at Psalm 37 and you'll have plenty of time to go over the rest uh, in the Wednesday morning women's Bible study. Uh, I've fi- I want to uh, just step on a few stepping stones as we walk through the rest of this uh, psalm. Uh, verse 12, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Gnashes his teeth at him. 
<laughs> That's a description of what the wicked do. They gnash their teeth at the righteous. Uh, isn't it interesting how uh, in our culture today, uh, the, this, what we see in our culture, the, this, the sinful culture uh, hate what they hear about uh, uh, what they assume that the, the church believes, what they assume we as Christians believe, is that, that we hate everyone else that's not like us. That's what they assume of us. And yet, it seems to be the shoes on the other foot sometimes, that they're the ones gnashing their teeth at us. They hate us for our very existence. Uh, that's just an identifier of, of the... Uh, of, of the, uh, the wicked and their approach to the righteous. Um, before I get too far down here, I want to mention something. I told you how this verse has these, uh, how this uh, psalm has these 40 verses that are in 22 stanzas. I took time to count up all of the commands, the direct commands in this psalm alone. There are 23 commands that I read in here. I also took time to look at uh, the description the promises and blessings and descriptions of the righteous, 51 different descriptions of righteous in this one psalm. And 28 different descriptions and curses, really, on the wicked in this psalm. So there's a lot here. A lot here. <clears throat> Look at verse 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Verse 15, their sword, the wicked, the sword of the wicked, shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Looking back over the life of David, you'll read about the demise of Saul when he finally came to an end. Saul and his sons were all, ki were all killed on the same, in the same battle, in the same day. And Saul, if you read the, the description, Saul ultimately died by his own weapon. He killed himself on his own weapon, his own sword. I think it's Far too likely. It's, it's, it's hard to read this knowing that David is, is writing these psalms instructing without his knowing he had firsthand experience, knowing that the wicked draw the sword and their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Let's see. Uh, let's look at uh, verse 23. Let's skip down to verse 23. Uh, what a wonderful uh, couple of verses, verse 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. For the Lord upholds his hand. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. I think there's a song. Uh, this has been put to music, and I can't read this ever without hearing that song. Anybody else ever heard that song of these two verses? Anyone heard that? Uh, if you have it, when you read it, you can't have. It. So <clears throat> I'm not going to break into song now. Um, it's pretty much verbatim right there, but it's it's uh, pretty good. But how do we? How does this? How does this work out? 
we, uh, we know that um, what, uh, the way we interpret this and the way we understand this is that God is sovereign over our very steps. God is sovereign over our very path. So each step that I take, and God in his, in his wisdom and the way he relates to us and the way I, we relate, I relate to him, I go through the action of making plans. I go through the action of praying. I go through the action of using wisdom and trying to make decisions. All along, as I pray for God's wisdom and guidance, I know that each of those steps are guided by him. Guided by him. And notice it says when he delights in his way. I mentioned before that we, when you receive the word delight, it can mean pliable. When I'm pliable in God's hands, now my steps are established in the Lord. And though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. So even falling, it's not to, the, to an end or to destruction. But the Lord upholds the righteous. Excuse me. I can't help but think, reading this and how cheerful this sounds, it must have brought to mind early in David's uh, campaign when he, was, when he finally had to flee the household of Saul. You might remember that if you go back and look at Psalm uh, 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 Samuel chapter or Samuel uh, one and two, and you look at the life of David. When David had to leave the house of Saul, he went through uh, to uh, the, uh, uh, the the place of worship, and he was he was hungry, and the men who were with him had nothing to eat. And they went, and the priest uh, had offered them some of the bread that had been offered on the uh, on the altar which was bread that only the priests should be eating. But the man trusted David. He thought he was on the king's business. He was obviously understood that God, that God had his hand on David and had a purpose for his act, actions and offered and gave him and his men the, the bread. Jesus mentions this uh, when he was arguing about the, uh, the Sabbath to uh, the, the Pharisees. But do you remember what happened? Or I, I had to... When I looked back, I looked to see what happened to those priests. When Saul knew, found out what had happened, and he was so enraged, he was so angry. When he was chasing David, he found those, the priests um, that had helped David, and he commanded his men to slay the priest and 85 others, 85 others, Merely for showing loyalty to David, merely for showing kindness to David, presumably righteous men, presumably following God. How can we read that and just say, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand? Well, we know and we trust that our lives, our ways, our future, it belongs to God. It belongs to Him. The life we live on this world, on this earth, belongs to Him. Every breath we draw is a gift from God. And that's how David can say, the Lord upholds 
the righteous. The Lord upholds his hand. Verse 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. I am young, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Verse 25, just reminded you of a time when David himself and his followers had to beg for bread. But God provided. God provided. And so any request that we make, really, we're asking God to provide it. No matter who we're real, no matter who we direct the words to, all of our requests really are being made toward God. Okay. Now I've talked about the righteous and the wicked, and I need to uh, close the. I need to uh, flesh that out a little bit as we look to to the end here. If you took just Psalm thirty-seven that you see that the righteous flourish and the wicked perish, by itself, we would have a shortened and very simplistic, very incomplete picture of the righteousness of God. So what is the right? What is righteousness? The righteous are those who are right in the eyes of God. That's what true righteousness is. Those who are right in the eyes of God. True righteousness can only come as a gift of God through Christ Jesus. We are made righteous in Him. And so when we say that we can find Christ in all, in, throughout the Old Testament, we find Christ even in places like this. When David speaks of the righteous, it's incomplete to leave that out that we are only made righteous in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, repeat, I'll repeat that. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, this is God talk. This is the. This is discussing the actions of our atonement, the actual actions of our atonement, the sacrifice that Christ made of Himself on the cross. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ was sinless, but He took on the sins. He took on our sins, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. My righteousness is is filthy rags. I have no righteousness outside of God. 1 Corinthians, now uh, skip uh, looking at another verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That's 1 Corinthians 1.30. Apart from Christ, we cannot be righteous. We may do things that may seem kind. They may seem polite. They may seem nice. They may appear righteous. But our motives are corrupt. Our hearts are weak. Our hearts are depraved. 
Apart from Christ, we cannot be righteous. Jesus was telling his disciples, John 15, 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We are in the process of being sanctified. We continue to deal with temptations. Now, I'd ask you even now, if you are sitting here and saying, okay, I hear in Psalm 37, there's the righteous and there's the wicked. But what I want to speak to folks just that are like me, that deal with these uh, concerns. Yes, I know that I have to follow Christ. Yes, I know that my redemption is in, in him alone, that I trust in him. I do trust in Christ for my salvation, and yet I am plagued in my mind by these temptations to wickedness and these temptations to evil. What do we make of that? What do we make of that? <clears throat> Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And verse uh, 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace, verse 15, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, this is Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He was referring to, you know, other, other followers of Christ, uh, Though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is within me. The sting of death, I'm skipping down in that same chapter to verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned that I was going to say a little bit more about the wicked. I hadn't really said a lot of descriptions of what that means other than those that are not following Christ, those that are not trusting in Christ. (laughs) Here's a description. Here's one description. Revelation 21.8. And this is a description of what must be or what what will be toward the end of of the of time that we know. A vision that was given to John of the future. And he writes, But as for the cowardly, this is Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, these are describing those who are wicked. Cowardly, faithless, detestable. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Which is the second death. It's a permanent death. It's real. It's a permanent punishment of wickedness. A permanent punishment of wickedness. And friends, 
If you are one who's gnashing your teeth at the righteous, who gnashes your, you're gnashing your teeth at God, you're rejecting the Savior, your only hope to, to avoid this punishment. I plead with you. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord today. Let us read Ezekiel 13, 33, 11 as we close. <clears throat> Ezekiel thirty three eleven. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? This prophecy was given to uh, to Israel during this time, but it continues to apply today. There is an, uh, a, uh, op God is calling us to turn to him, calling us to turn to him, to uh, turn to him for the salvation that he provides, that he gives, that he calls us, all, that he calls us to. All right, well, how's that for a childlike psalm? <laughs> wow, I tell you, it's real, folks. We need to be pleading with those of us, our family members, our friends that we know that are lost. We need to be bold and tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. No one who's drowning is saved by throwing them a wet towel. You save them, you, you save them by bringing them onto firm ground. You save them by giving them, uh, pulling them to shore. You save them by pulling them into the boat. Throwing a drowning man a wet towel doesn't save them. Amen? Let's tell, let's tell the lost world the truth. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask, uh, thank you, God, for this uh, psalm that we had to enjoy, that we have before us to read this clear distinction between righteous and wicked these clear commands help us to read them and follow them. Help us to teach them to our children and to our families and to others. And Lord, help us to be counted among the righteous that trust in you, uh, that repent and turn to you, that our sins are forgiven and we're washed and sanctified by you. And Lord, even now we pray, we pray and plead, Lord, for, the, for those who are deceived in wickedness, oh God. Deceived that wrong is right, and right is wrong. Lord, help us to know the truth. Help us to be set free by the truth. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.